Before we get started today, we'd like to thank you all for tuning in with a special shout out to those who are supporting us on Patreon. We'll give you the link later on the show for those who want to sign up, but while there is no on-field action to report on at the moment, there are still so many stories to share. Keep an eye at EmergingCricket.com and our various social channels for some exciting new projects coming up. Our global network of contributors are pulling together to ramp up their efforts to shine a light on this amazing sport and the effects it has beyond its traditional centers. A quick shout out to our new patrons in recent weeks. Kieran Holly, Mog Destroyer of Worlds, Ashton Mascarenas, James Lloyd, Lawrence Kidd, Nathan Hayes, Teresa So, and Rory Knox, who's contributed some work in recent weeks. Thank you very much. And a shout out to ESPN Quick Info's Peter Delapena, who has also contributed to the cause. He actually features quite prominently in a lot of our recent Patreon content too. So make sure to check that out. And once again, thank you for your support. In the meantime, don't forget to push that subscribe button so you'll be notified whenever we publish a new episode. If you know anybody who would be interested in what we talk about, share the link with as many friends as you can to help spread the word. And if you want to get involved, make sure to get in touch. On today's podcast, we catch up with one of our Valley contributors, Tasneem Samarkhan, as we discuss some of the broader issues surrounding sport and its place in cultural context. Enjoy. Thank you for joining us again for the Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. With me are the podcast regulars and another member of the EC crew, but still a special guest. First, the man known as Copernicus Cricket on Twitter, Nick Skinner. Nick, how are you? I'm all right, Bez. Uh, Just got back from a social distancing walk with Brooklyn uh, along the beach on the coast. Uh, One of the good things about the Central Coast is there's lots of uh, nice nature you can go to and uh, there's no one else around, so uh, you can still get outside uh, responsibly. Which beach? Uh, Up up near Putty Beach. Uh, Kilcare, I think, actually, yeah. Great part of the world. Mm. Uh, Enjoyed Mm. uh, many, many a day uh, bask in the sunshine there, but good to to see you're uh, exercising still as per the uh, requirements of the Australian government. Uh, Tim Cutler in Brisbane. Uh, how are you spending your time in lockdown? Well, I'm enjoying some niche Central Coast content to start with. Thank you for that, boys. <laughs> um, my well, it's not isolation, but uh, as good as uh, continues. So uh, all, all good up here. Very excited to be joining for podcast number 52. Now, what what do we think of with that number? What is that that, that comes to mind? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Uh, not a whole lot, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh... Oh, well, I, I can say David Boone, four X cans. <laughs> oh, yes, the much fabled story. And I can say Donald Bradman and uh, and Dean Jones. Yeah, same number of tests that Bradman and Jones played and the number of beer cans. So, but no, nope, I'm all good, Bez. How are you? Look, not, not too bad. I can't really report on anything exciting. Uh, just sort of chipping away at some emerging cricket content which i'm hoping uh people are enjoying apart from that uh yeah trying to trying to do a mix of of little bits and pieces uh but yeah again nothing nothing special so uh nothing to report on someone who is a little bit more exciting than me at this point i'm (laughs) guessing is our uh fourth member of tonight's team uh she has been a regular contributor uh at ec uh, during our time here, uh, but also getting a lot done in a lot of other different projects as well. Tasneem Samarkhan. Tasneem, how are you? I'm great, Bez. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? He did really well answering this last time. 
Well, it's only polite to ask. I had to. It's just polite. No, yeah, I, I, I can't, can't say can't say there's too much going on, unfortunately. Taz, one of the, the first questions that we've been asking uh, a lot of our guests, especially in recent episodes, uh, if you could change one law in cricket, uh, what would it be and why? So I'm going to give you what is very much a lawyer's answer and say that it's the preamble to the laws that we all know is really important because it's the light in which you interpret the laws themselves, and that is the concept of the spirit of cricket. It is a concept that's talked about a lot. Obviously, it's incredibly nebulous. The preamble doesn't at any time define it. It just give exa- gives examples. So, for example, things like um the sp- you know like playing hard and fair is in line with the spirit of cricket. Shaking hands with your opponents is in line with the spirit of cricket. So it gives interpretive examples, but it doesn't actually interpret what the phrase spirit of cricket means. And this is why you know every every player, every match official, every viewer, every consumer interprets the spirit of cricket dif- differently um, from one another. And we see it coming up time and time again in man-catting controversies. Of course, man-catting is very much in line with the laws of cricket, um, but we seem to think that the preamble overrides the laws because the preamble is absolutely there. So it's a weird one, and I think it's the one that I would probably choose. Um, It also has this bizarre aspect of trying to traditionalize the laws despite the law's annually or regularly changing. Well, you not only gave a lawyer's answer, but you've also proved that you haven't listened to the three last podcasts <laughs> where that exact thing was pointed out by uh, the last three answers. <laughs> you've basically encapsulated the answers from Peter Delapena, Andrew Nixon and Jake Perry perfectly. All in one. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I have been busy, okay? I've been living my life in isolation, which um, honestly may have been slightly healthier than my life previous to isolation. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, well, I just think it's one of those things where, again, I think cricket is one of these sports or or games that is a little bit more rose tinted. Uh, looking back at some of its uh, some of its stuff from from the early days, and something like the spirit of cricket made sense in in, in that era. But now that we are in stiff competition a lot of the time, either playing for for money or or national trophies or World Cups and stuff like that, I think um, it's probably something that needs to go by the wayside and needs to join the past um, where it sort of belongs. Uh, before we get too much into that, though, I do really want to get the ball rolling in terms of the, the show tonight. Uh, and tonight's uh, podcast is surrounded, or at least discussing the, the broader issues in cricket. It's centered on the broader issues in, in cricket with Taz Neiman and Nick and Tim. And we want to discuss uh, some of the big uh, human rights issues, not just not just laws that we we're talking about, say five minutes ago, but but stuff like human rights and and the efforts that that sport and, and cricket can make in in helping the world move forward, cultural attitudes towards sport, uh, something like coronavirus hitting as well, and and how a pandemic affects it, just like every other sport. Uh, it's probably worth noting though before we do get started, and and this will sort of lead into our conversations, is a few bits and pieces of news that we probably need to get to before we we get started. Uh, the first is that the ICC are to host a chief executives committee meeting uh, via conference call this week. Uh, that will include 12 full members and three associate members. Uh, those particular members are Neil Spade of Bermuda, Sumo Damada of Botswana and Mark Stafford of Vanuatu. Uh, they're three elected associate member reps uh, rather than specific boards. And of course, there's also the ICC board with 17 votes that has uh, three associate members uh, one from Malaysia, Mahinda Valaparam, uh, one from Scotland, Tony Bryan, 
and also Imran Khawaja of uh, Singapore as well. So they'll be discussing a lot of issues in regards to how cricket's set to move forward in the wake of this pandemic. And I'm sure that hopefully we will get to see some international cricket or just cricket in general on at some point. It's very difficult to tell when when things will open back up, but at least there are meetings in place to try and uh, make adjustments and move forward. The other bit of news that we did want to get uh, along to as well is that European Cricket League 2021 has been announced and the qualification for each country participating in that tournament has been announced as well. We will discuss stuff like morals and and fairness in regards to cricket competitions, but Daniel Weston announced this week on an Instagram live chat with uh, Michael McCann that the same domestic entrant that did qualify for European Cricket League 20 will be in the tournament if no domestic cricket is played in that particular country. Other avenue that they could go down is if they do have domestic cricket in 2020 to qualify for ECL, Uh, There's two options. Either the 2020 domestic champion will get the European Cricket League spot or they'll have a playoff between the 2019 champion and the 2020 domestic champion for an ACL spot in 2021. Now, Taz, I want to bring you in to start with because we were both set to to be in Lamunga for for ECL 20. Unfortunately, we couldn't due to to obvious circumstances. Personally, I think it's probably the best way that they could have gone about that. Uh, I'm sure you probably agree. Uh, But it it does raise the question of how morally things like this can get very difficult. You know, we're we're trying to crown champions in other sports that were halfway through their respective seasons. Cricket was a little bit luckier in that there was a bit more of a clean break. But this seems to be probably the fairest uh, way that things could have been done in regards to the ACL for 2021. You're right about cricket being luckier than other sports, Bez, for sure, because, you know, we saw with the AFL and the NRL and and, and um, soccer football, I can't even say football without making it clear that I'm talking about the British football and not the American one, but um, we saw with other sports that, that they had a lot more difficulty because of just the nature of how the seasons run. But cricket, you know, it's, it's right before the English summer started and it was pretty much at the end of the Australasian summer. I think the only um, series that ended up being cancelled was the one-day series between New Zealand and Australia, where they played the first game behind closed doors, um, if I remember correctly, and then had to cancel the rest of the series, which, you know, absolutely fair enough, not a problem. Um, I don't think that that was a massive loss to the world of cricket or anything like that. But yes, you and I were supposed to be partying it up in, in La Manga, and by partying it up, I mean doing incredibly serious work for uh, the European Cricket League. Um, it would have been fun. It would have been a blast. And, and I know we were both very much looking forward to being involved with that, um, obviously because of the way that we feel about grassroots cricket, the way that we feel about the associate game, the way that we feel generally about growing the game. Um, and, and I know that you're particularly passionate about this and you've done a lot of work over what your the last few years of your very short life. <laughs> to try and make some of that happen. So we were super psyched. But actually, I think the ECL has made a fantastic move. It's a great decision um, because obviously the the 2019, yeah, the 2019 season champions um, deserved deserved their shot to be, well, deserved to be playing, to have qualified this for this um, uh, tournament that was scheduled to happen in what, about six weeks time, a month's time. But we'll be having the competition in 2021 now. And if if there is cricket to be played this season, then, you know, why why not 
the individuals that that manage to push through and and win their various um, competitions for this season. So I think the idea of having a playoff, which is one of the ideas that the ECL has proposed, is great. Let them duke it out. Give us all more cricket. Get competitive. That might be, and I know I just said, let's not use the phrase, spirit of the game. But that might be what is truly in the spirit of the game. I, I think it's a great decision. Importantly, it also drums up interest um, in if there is cricket played this summer, which um, is looking more and more unlikely as, as days pass. But, but you know, we'll, we'll discuss that at some later point. It will get a little bit precarious if there is to be domestic cricket played anywhere in Europe over the summer, though. You have to say that the odds of that actually happening at this point are still relatively slim. Uh, but yeah, they, they they were pushing everyone for the section option uh, in that you should have a playoff. But and it would be it would be incredibly disappointing if a team who did qualify for ECL twenty was not competing in ECL twenty one. But uh, we'll keep you up to date with with news and events in regards to that when there is some cricket being played. Let's move into to some of our conversations of cricket and its role in, in the general community. And I think that for a lot of people who are bereft of of things at the moment, you know, with sport not going on, a lot of people have, have found a bit of an emptiness. A lot of people kind of don't really know what to do with their lives without something like sport. Taz, we know that you've you've been very busy in a lot of different respects of, of work and other things like that. But for you, like anyone else, cricket has played a, a big part in in your upbringing and, of course, part of your life and you followed a lot of cricket. Uh, where have you kind of been left in in the wake of having no cricket to watch right now? Because we'd be probably in the in the swing of things with the, with the county season and, and your beloved Essex playing. You're absolutely right. I have played my whole life. I've watched it. I've followed it. And then within, what, the last, like, two and a half, three years, three years now, I've been working in the sport. So it has been interesting. Um, I'm just going to add that I know that I'm in a somewhat unique position here, uh, being so involved and, you know, like having a lot of a lot of my friends are in the industry a lot of um, my social group is in the industry and then I've been working in it and I went obviously when I moved to New Zealand I had just finished up an, an English summer or summer in the rest of the world traditional summer as I will call it so I just gone from from you know doing cricket bits like working playing all of that from March up until what the end of September, which is six months, it's it's you know like a big chunk of your year. Um, we had the World Cup in that time. I had Scotland series. I had Ireland series to cover. I went to Canada for the GT Twenty again. So it was really really busy. And then I came to New Zealand at the start of November, which for the first international game of the Kiwi summer. And then I was here until the end of the season, which was a slightly abrupt finish in the end because um, New Zealand were supposed to host um, in March the uh, Australian side for some games. Um, So that was the only thing that was cancelled in New Zealand. Uh, But so I know I'm in a unique position, but I went from from working flat out in, you know, like my my regular job, um, you know, like law, human rights and all of that. And then whilst simultaneously working flat out with my cricket staff, having the World Cup, playing constantly into doing it all over again somewhere else, I got no break. And 
in all honesty, like I said, I know this is a unique position and this is not going to be where everybody is coming from. It is really, really, really nice to have a break from cricket. It is really nice to pick up some interests that I had prior to my my intense involvement in the professional side of this game. It's really nice to, you know, like, I don't know, um, be cooking again or baking again or watching films again. I'm, film has always been a, like a very intense interest of mine. I used to regularly attend film festivals. I used to make short films with friends. I used to act. I used to write. I used to do so many different things um, in film. And I haven't done any of that in years and years and years. And, and I'm not trying to make a hierarchy of things that you love, but it's really nice to exercise other parts of your brain. Um, so it's been great to be getting back into film and cooking. I am, you know, I'm not going to say that I'm like a professional knitter or anything, but um, I've always knitted toys and, and clothes and things like that for my nieces. It's been great to do things like be able to pick up knitting needles and to have time to, to just exercise things that I think about and enjoy joy and love and that stimulate me other than cricket. And of course, we've all been stimulated by cricket somewhat at this time. I have really kind of struggled with people's positions um, in terms of how much other people are struggling without sport. Look, we, and we always say this, and this is my position when it comes to everything, sport has a massive power for good. It has a massive power to um, traverse boundaries whether those are sociocultural, linguistic, religious, um, anything. Sport has a massive power in our society for good, for the good of everyone and bringing people together. So I'm not trying to minimize how much people need sport or how they feel about there being no sport or, or no cricket specifically at the moment. However, I have really struggled with the fact that we have had a very short period without sport and a lot of people have seemingly not been able to cope. We have all been told by virtue of the number of deaths that we've seen across the world, by virtue of the seriousness of the situation that we're in, by virtue of the fact that this is a once in a generation aspect that the or, or experience for, for everybody, including, including people who have been around for wars. Look, we are not Iraqi children who have intergenerationally lived with the concept of being bombed and, and living with rations and things like that. For most of us in the Western world, this is probably the most difficult thing that we have experienced. And it is a little bit of a struggle for me to see people not be able to wake up and smell the freshly baked cookies and spend some time with their loved ones, um, you know, get to, to re-know each other, relearn about each other, value things other than things that sometimes can be a bit shallow. Um, you know, who cares who's making the most runs this season or taking the most wickets or, or you know, whether... A certain player is out of form and whether he's going to crack back in when, you know, not to be hyperbolic, but we are looking at life and death. Um, You guys know I'm from England and 17,000 people, I think maybe 19,000 actually, have died um, from likely from coronavirus because our testing capacity is also not really doing great in England. So 17 or, or 19, excuse me for misremembering, 19,000 people have died. And what are we worried about? Whether whether Liverpool are going to be handed a trophy despite, you know, like what, not playing the last few games of the season. So to me, it is a little bit bizarre. And I've struggled with other people's opinions on it. I have a lot of friends who are at home from their jobs and they are 
everybody's in a different position. Some of us have financial security at this time and some people do not. Um, I can understand that sport is a fantastic distraction from stuff that's going on, whether it's personal, financial, health-wise, COVID-19 itself. So I do understand that and I'm not trying to minimize it. But I have a friend who's who's sitting at home, been asked to work from home, um, you know, like with, with his partner and his like six-year-old child who he always complains about never getting to spend enough time with. And what's he doing now other than complaining that there's no sport on for him to watch? So I I do find some of the values that some of us have displayed during this time a little bit bizarre. We are never in our lifetimes going to be asked to stay at home and enjoy some family time ever again. And yeah, it kind of sucks not being able to take your kid to the water park or, or like place, you know, go to their league games or whatever it is that you normally do with your time in your life the rest of the time. But we... We have a moment here to reconnect with ourselves and reconnect with the people that we love. So, yes, I have struggled with people's um, people's way of handling it, and and for me, it's it's kind of been goddamn fantastic. I I love cricket. You guys all know this. I have loved it my entire life. But it is very, very, very nice to be able to think about other things and to remember the stuff that matters as well, and to engage with the people that you love. Tim, I actually want to bring you here in a way as an ex. Uh, cricket CEO for for Hong Kong during your time there. And I know that you probably didn't face something as strenuous as something like coronavirus, but what do you think the responsibility is for, say, a governing body? We know that Hong Kong have had to uh, crown actually some champions across the age groups as part of these cancellations. Uh, Just how difficult is it to, to make decisions like that? There's obviously a lot of people that you need to cater for, but there's other measures that you need to put in place to, to make sure everyone's kept safe um, without trying to, to bring cricket back because ultimately that's your product. Where does that leave you guys from uh, from a human sense anyway? Well, how difficult is it? You know, it's a, a tough thing to, to say because it's all about from which perspective you look at it. You know, from a societal point of view, it's it's un- unprecedented. But if we take a, an associate cricket lens, I think you'd almost say that associate cricket administrations and cricketers are probably better set up to deal with something as extreme as, as this and I'll sort of talk I think about the human sense but you know first and foremost it's health and players of staff and I think the key thing here is to be to listening to the experts which generally cricket seems to have done um, Hong Kong from that perspective of my time there had been through SARS in the, the early 2000s and along with Singapore, I think, is particularly well set up or at least from a, a society point of view to kind of click to SARS mode and with everybody wearing masks, as many people do of a, of a daily basis anyway there, something that you uh, you probably get used to, but it's one of those strange things that, that, that you see there, but they were really well to set up to, to react and in terms of social distancing and, and how that's dealt with. So. Hong Kong would have, Hong Kong cricket would have been one of the lucky ones of being in a society that's used to that. Um, but beyond that sort of public health perspective and how cricket and the sport fits into it, it's also the mental health of the cricketers and staff around you. And I'm, I know later in the podcast we want to talk to Taz about the sort of pastoral care and the part that that sport has to play in that. But that's a big part of it. And knowing you know that you're a sporting organisation and you're not a health organisation, but we can be and what you can be for your players and the, and the community. But from an administration point of view, it's also the, the financial matters that you've, you've got to be thinking about because ultimately you're there acting on behalf of the public to run the sport. 
for a country. And so the, the obligations and the, the outgoings, it's to, to have a look at what's what bills are coming up and, and things that you can you can manage there with your partners and stakeholders, but it's also what's coming in as well. And, and associate cricket nations are probably better off, a lot better off than their, their full member um, brothers and sisters, or maybe the, the bigger ones that are so dependent on the millions, the tens and hundreds of millions of dollars of, of rights income coming in, as we're seeing with, with Cricket Australia, but also the exposure that we've seen with Cricket Australia has had to the, the share market. You know, you're not going to have Hong Kong Cricket or, or KNCB in the Netherlands have $90 million or any million dollars in, in, in stocks that they're going to lose. You know, that the, the advantage for associate cricket is that, well, the disadvantage is that there's a lot of hand-to-mouth um, living in the, in the emerging cricket world. Um, but in this case, it's a positive because, you know, the money that's coming in, it's not like they've got huge overheads that they need to pay for. Everything is normally ordered and paid for or a broadcast is, it, deal is not done over five years. It's a, it's a Netherlands versus Pakistan deal that can probably be, be put off and it's not like they've, they've got a lot of obligations. So it's seeing what's coming in. But the, the, the advantage for an associate is the money is coming from the ICC, which you hope is still able to, to come in. Um, it was talked about on the Gorilla uh, cricket podcast earlier in the week um, that um, some well the ICC is considering sending money at different um, frequencies to, to, to help out countries uh, the money for uh, full members comes I think it's only twice a year I learnt from from Warren during that that call um, on that podcast I should say um, but for associates it comes quarterly so it's a little bit more regular and i know there have been times i know when hong kong was in a bit of strife around the the, the sixes and and blitz not doing as well as they wanted to that, that they they did ask for some of that funding to, to come up front um but you just hope the money's getting to the icc because that that money comes through from star and other partners linked to to global events so you hope that isn't coming through but it's also the government money that comes to to associates which is a, a big consideration um, that the likes of Hong Kong, that is a very cash-rich um, government. You hope that money is still getting to the sports and getting to the other associate nations as need, boy, need, need be. But from an operational point of view, it's I think it's something. It's a time to be be flexible. Uh, you know, assuming you still have able to have your staff and, and pay them, it's how you can you can redeploy them um, or even into the community to help. But also, you look at the the, the likes of what the the uh, Latin American uh, women cricketers have done and with the, the social media engagement and Hong Kong, I can see doing sort of Hong Kong cricket at home and how you can use this time to really start reconnecting or connecting better with the community because, you know, I think sports going to be a big part of rebuilding of society and it's going to be down to these sports as to, to how they do better connect with the community and, and, and the grassroots and it'll, and it'll be the, the sports that are better set up to to come out the back end of this when there's less money, but potentially more local involvement and more regional sport as opposed to more international and interregional um, um, games with a lot less international travel for a long time. You know, it's going to be how sports can bounce back from that, but also the sports people, the athletes should not be guinea pigs and thrown out there into to perform for people like uh, uh, like a circus um, or animals on show, you know, to make sure that their health is looked after as well. Uh, well, this kind of leads into the next question, and I guess I'll throw it to Taz. This is kind of a, a, a perfect intersection of your expertise, isn't it? Being a, a medical crisis with human rights implications. Um, the the question of sport in general, and you know. 
um, obviously we, we, we think about it as fans, you know, we want to, we want to see some cricket, but you know, you, you look at the athletes themselves and obviously the, the, the governing bodies have a responsibility to them. How do you think sports should navigate? And this, I guess, goes for all sports at the moment, not just cricket, you know, how, how should we navigate both the return to cricket and, and, you know, um, the lack of cricket, because, uh, you know, we see proposals like uh the the nrl's idea of uh, having it's funny you should mention the nrl i was literally just thinking about it um so the nrl has has i think given a blueprint for exactly what you should not do nrl island yeah and you mentioned you mentioned my medical background and my human rights law background um it's absolutely wild the concept of taking players and and professionals and power professionals and broadcasters and all of those guys putting them onto a island so that they can what perform like monkeys for the rest of us to keep <laughs> us entertained during lockdown while the world is in a medical legal crisis that that we've never really seen i i mean you know even the spanish flu i think probably did not reach the worldwide heights of, of what we've got today. Uh, it, it's just absolutely wild to me. And that a government would, or a government official like a prime minister would somewhat endorse this idea. Oh, well, he loves his sharkies. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, and again, it goes back to what I think that our priorities sociologically, just as, just as a society in general are, and where we're at with that. I think it's really strange. Like what we really can't like do anything with ourselves for this short time that we have to ship people, ignore their health, their families, their priorities, their everything. What, just to, to make an entertaining product out of it? So, yeah, I think the NRL is exactly what you shouldn't do. So you you mentioned um, that... So from from the different aspects of, of, of the expertise or the, the things that I work in, at, from a human aspect, I just think it's a really weird societal position that we're in, that we, like I said before, can't do anything or can't function without the sport, even though for all... By all indications, you know, all of our lockdowns are not going to last a year. You know, they're not going to go into a crazy wild mode. They're going to be a short amount of time where we can catch up on things, reprioritize, um, get to know people that we love again, check up on people, take care of each other, um, take care of ourselves, you know, develop some other hobbies and interests, maybe make ourselves more interesting people holistically. I don't know. But that's like from the human aspect. From the medical aspect, the fact that we are trying to have discussions about playing a game when it's not physically safe for these players and power professionals to be doing so. I'm just ignoring the concept of fans attending because I don't think anyone at this point is suggesting that fans should be able to attend these events. Well, players and professionals live in such close quarters. They play a game, whether it's rugby, where you're, it's a physical game, it's a contact sport, or even cricket, where you are you're handling objects like a bowler handles a ball, you know, gets a sweat on it, gets a spit on it, whatever handles a ball and bowls it to a batsman and it's received by any of, of the other 10, you know, fielding um, members of his side. So so just in terms of what these sports actually are and what they mean in terms of a medical or, or close contact um, capacity for all of these people, it's absolutely wild that we're suggesting that for, for sheer entertainment value at the moment. Sport is, it has lots of place of importance, but at this time and during what's going on, is it really so important that we try and take advantage of people's um, financial situations, of people's like career um, opportunities being stunted to, to provide a product for a consumer? It's just, it's just capitalism on crack, to be honest. 
Yeah, well, it, uh, it reminds me of, uh, you know, this, this NRL Island thing. Of uh, I read a comic book once called America's Got Powers, where basically these superpowered teenagers were kept in this uh, compound and they were wheeled out for a, a battle TV show that got massive ratings. And that's kind of what I thought the NRL, that's basically what I felt like it was going for. And obviously that's uh, not great from a, a human rights perspective. I've heard proposals about the CPL. So... We know that a lot of borders have closed and um, from all indications, other borders will probably close as, as some start to open up a little or open up with limitations. We know this has impacted the aviation and tourism industry so severely and obviously the sporting industry, but, but we just know the way that this has worked in the world so far. So if you're looking at the CPL, which isn't even held in a country like the county championship is, it is held in a group of countries with disparate medical legal situations, with disparate um, rates of virulence rates of, of, of transmission with disparate numbers of COVID-19 cases and deaths in diff- different health systems themselves. So we're holding it in, in a variety of countries. That sport requires like traveling from country to country or even if we limited games, just the one place you're still having at what minimum of two teams in each place playing. Um, to continue the CPL, I've heard, um, well, people have said, well, this is a great opportunity for domestic players, for, you know, some 19-year-old Jamaican batsman or, or whatever the case might be. What a ridiculous thing to do to said 19-year-old Jamaican batsman that he knows that he's a bench warmer the rest of the time. He doesn't get any match time. He doesn't get to to play and participate. How much is this coercive or how, how much are we p- making these players play under some kind of duress or taking advantage of, of the opportunity, the weird opportunity that COVID-19 may provide for him? So I think that it's bizarre from, from a medical standpoint as well. And then obviously from the human rights standpoint, I mean, let's go back to the concept of NRL Island. <laughs> where we're isolating people from their families what for in favor of their contracts so that we get to watch them it's um it's really quite bizarre and and for me it it means a whole social overhaul and reassessment of the importance that we place on these things and the way that we look as uh, athletes as bodies for our entertainment um we feel so entitled to the product that that they give us. And, you know, I'm not saying that some of them are not very well paid or adequately, um, you know, um, remunerated or whatever the case might be. But, you know, on, on the other side, we're looking at, at medical professionals without PPE. We're looking at nurses who are dying. We're looking at a lot of and, and this is not to um, minimize what other essential service workers are doing, people in the food industry, a delivery, people in, in industry itself, farmers. You know, there's there's a whole host of people working overtime so that our society can run as functionally and uh, as possible and with as little interruption as possible. Why are we not? And I know why we in this podcast are not thinking about that stuff specifically, because this is, after all, a cricket podcast. So naturally, we're thinking about what all of this means for the sport. But why are we as a society not focusing on our energy on on all of those other people in, in society that have always done these things for us and their jobs always should have been valued and they always should have been adequately remunerated and protected by by citizens, by governments, everything. Um, so I think we've got a whole lot of thinking to do as a society, you know? Well, that um sort of ties into another question I had and, and you talk about reassessment of well, cricket and, and just the sporting landscape in general. Uh, do, do you think maybe there's a, a reassessment for sort of the, the cultural attitudes towards sport, both 
um, you know, the importance of it, um, which you sort of touched on, you know, <laughs> spend some time with your family, but also, uh, you know, the, the, the way that we perceive athletes as um, figures that, that don't exist as human beings. And I, I don't think that's necessarily fair on athletes. Um, you know, we sort of project uh, what we want to see onto these athletes. And, you know, you have the whole uh, role model athletes thing, which I think is uh, nonsense. But, you know, then then on the other hand, we have the inspirational quality of sport. And you look at, you know, the, the Thai women's team or, or the South African rugby team um, uniting a, a country with, you know, their racial issues. And so there's an undeniable power to sport. So where do you see the cultural attitudes going as as we do kind of reassess what's important in our lives? Um, in all honesty, I don't see them changing very much. Um, it's, or maybe a slow and sure change, which would be really, really nice to see. Because I don't think humans learn their lessons. <laughs> but in all honesty, I, I, I don't think we do. You know, maybe we're just very much cyclical creatures that we need things to remind us. So, so I would love to have as much faith in humanity as I probably should. Um, and of course, there are good people everywhere. That's that's the reality of the world. But um. I don't know if we we learn lessons in a market or long-lasting way as much as I would like us to. Look at how many situations we've seen. Um, you talked about like uh, the way that athletes are treated, and and I am maybe less concerned about the athletes as individuals and just what that treatment says holistically um, about us as a society, how we value sports and the importance that we place on them, the importance that we place on a man's capacity to either kick a ball or bowl a ball or whatever the case might be, and what it actually means for the world and where our value system lies. I'll give you the example of, of, um, Cristiano Ronaldo, right? So, so just with the concept of all of the numerous rape allegations, one of which is so heavily um, well-documented with copious amounts of incredibly compelling evidence, just the way that we look at it as a society, despite having seen the way that athletes have been, I'm going to use the word conditioned, but that might be an oversimplification of what the situation is, have been conditioned to treat women or have been allowed to treat women or engage in harassment, or even, you know, assault issues, um, you know, getting in fights, um, domestic violence. So just the way that athletes have been conditioned, I'm going to talk about Ronaldo for a quick sec. He, he kicks a ball real well. And as a result, we have over half of the world, it's much well, well, well over half of the world just saying, nah, those things ain't true because he's the best striker in the world. That's it. That's that's our value system right there. They're not true because he kicks a ball really, really well. That's where we're at as a society. So despite seeing the numerous cases that we have of, of athletes engaging in all sorts of societal ills, just I'm not saying they don't happen in other industries. I'm just saying that athletes are probably shielded from the consequences because of um, their skills and the commercial value of said skills. Yeah, that Ronaldo example is quite telling because a lot of independent news sources that investigated that found out that that he was basically, or at least his lawyers were basically offering hush money for for people to to be quiet about it. And it was actually one of the reasons why he moved away from from Spain to play in Italy, allegedly, was to essentially escape from uh, a lot of the troubles that he had in Spain. Um, And that's why he basically, in public, tried to drum up this tension between him and, and members of the board in, in the Real Madrid setup. To get it back to cricket, the point that I actually want to bring up, and this is to, to piggyback on, on what you guys are saying, but there's a lot of the time that there's a perception that sports people aren't exactly street smart or they're not intelligent or that, you know, they're focused on 
their entire life on, on sport. You know, the, there's a, a big stereotype that in the in the football codes that that sports people in those codes aren't intelligent. You know, I, I think for a long time to bring it back to the, the football example, Wayne Rooney was often criticised a lot for for not being smart or articulate on his ideas. But you have to think that when you get to the 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 hyper rich and hyper uh, skillful sports people who are blooded very very young to be professionals in their selected sports and Stephen Smith who was pigeonholed to be a cricketer when he was very very young I think it's very harsh to to turn around and call people out on some of their indiscretions sometimes because they're not exactly brought up in the, in the same way that's not to condone anything that that goes on you know from 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 certain situations where you know a lot of people's moral compasses get uh, tested but you have to also think too that associate cricket actually is immune from stuff like that because there's never been a lot of money in it and because, you know, I can't say that, I can't speak from experience because I'm not from an associate cricket country, but I, I don't think that, you know, sports people or, or cricketers in a lot of the countries where there isn't as much money, a la the associate countries, are earmarked just to compete in cricket or in other sports and therefore need to have this well-rounded view of the world, this well-rounded education uh, growing up in, in school. A pandemic like this has actually shown that, yeah, I, I think we've all made similar points here, but associate cricketers are kind of the best people in, in I'll say professional in inverted commas, because a lot of sports people in associate members aren't paid. But in terms of elite sport, associate cricketers are actually the best off because they have this well-rounded idea of, of how to to behave and 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 they do have either private or public education and yeah exactly they have consequences on a lot of their actions whereas yeah you do look at at, at professional footballers who earn squillions of money they just don't have that that compass because it's it's unavailable to them but the other thing is too about cricket is that that level of measure that level of perspective is actually ingrained in the sport too where you know one day you'll go out and you won't make runs or one day you won't take wickets you know other days you'll make a hundred other days you'll you'll take five wickets where in comparison something like football you have 90 minutes and it doesn't matter how many mistakes you make and make in the five the first five minutes of the game it's irrelevant when it gets to the 90 minutes and you've scored three goals to bring it back to uh to, to cricket a pandemic like this has exposed uh, a lot of people's shortcomings, but at the same time, there are shortcomings that are not that particular person's fault per se. Can't, I, I can't universally condone everyone for every indiscretion that they've ever made because of that reason, but I do think it's a contributing factor. Great points, Bez. It's absolutely a contributing factor. And I know I've said it about 10,000 times in this conversation already, but it's more about our societal values as a whole. Um, so we, you know, like look at the example of Steve Smith or Virat Kohli, for for instance. We knew from the age of like fetus that those guys were so sick levels of talented that this is what they were earmarked for before they could proper, properly do anything. So while the rest of us were learning consequences from I don't know, not cleaning our rooms and our mommies telling us that we were grounded or whatever the case might be, getting, getting, finding out what consequences in life were about. Even on a small scale, these guys were in the nets. These guys were playing. These guys were told, hey, you're going to be such and thunduka or even bigger if you do this right. So, and, and obviously with football, because we're talking about an industry that financially is so different from cricket, then it's it's just on a completely different scale. So they have been shielded. They have been protected from consequences. They have been told that they're special little boys and that special little boy 
doesn't have consequences and it means that he can do pretty much whatever the hell he likes because he scores a lot of runs or because whatever inserts like whatever his talent is right here and I think that matters they they didn't get detentions at school because they didn't do the same type of schooling that the rest of us did they didn't necessarily pursue um, a career or university education and you're absolutely right about associate players we know that what situation most of them are in they're not bankers or accountants or um, you know IT guys or, or whatever the case is just because they just loving love banking so damn much it's also because of the nature the precarious nature of their work as an associate player as well I'm sure some of them just really, really, really love finance, but that's a different story altogether. So I absolutely agree with you. There's consequences for the rest of us in every aspect of our lives. These guys are protected from it. These guys are shielded from it. They are not raised. They're raised and... and Some of it is really, really, really unfortunate for them because it means that they do not get a holistic life. What, for for my entertainment? Ronaldo's not just making money for himself, is he? Ronaldo is making a hell of a lot more money for other people, whether they're Nike officials, whether they're FIFA officials, whether they're, you know, whatever club he's, he's playing at whether they're their directors, whatever the case might be, he's making a, a ton of money for other people. And that is probably the commercial reasons, the financial reasons are probably why they are so well protected. We all know that after the ball tampering um, controversy happened um, with um, with the Australian side, um, Steve Smith, who was, who was banned from the professional side of the game, um, and, and I'm not going to talk about the moral concept of, of ball tampering, and I'm definitely not putting it in the same scale of, of, of the rape stuff or anything like that that we've been talking about, but we know that he was then asked to do a Vodafone ad. So, so there's still... There were some consequences because Cricket Australia gave them some consequences, but those consequences were limited. And we know that the financial repercussions were very, very limited. Vodafone were asking him to do real expensive ads. And I'm sure very many other people were. You know, I I, I know him because he was at the GT20 that year. So how many real consequences were there if, um, yeah, he can't play games for Australia, but obviously a commercial enterprise like the GT20 sees that opportunity and says, well, we can have Steve and, and Warner playing here and that's going to pull in crowds so so it's really concerning but I agree with you Bez that some of it or a lot of it is because of what we or the industry have done you're actually talking about a lot of concepts um so I wrote a piece for the night watchman called who'd want to be a cheerleader and it was the concept of of well, it was mostly about Alex Hepburn, but it was a spiral of not just thinking about the individuals like your Alex Hepburns or or your Cristiano Ronaldos, but thinking about the broader concept, why this issue keeps coming up. Are sportsmen rapists in larger degrees than any other person? No, definitely not. There is no intrinsic difference in people by race, religion, you know, um, um, your profession, any of that. Are sportsmen protected and shielded from the real consequences? Yes. Do we need to be thinking about and vilifying the individuals like the Alex Hepburns and the Ronaldos? Well, they need to have consequences put upon them. I'm not condoning their actions or not saying that there there shouldn't be consequences to their actions and we shouldn't, as a society, do something about it. But is that the important part or is it stopping creating guys like Alex Hepburn and Ronaldo that we do by virtue of, of how we treat the industry? Probably Look at what we've seen with the NRL. Um, you know, we've just had, what, another sex scandal in a long line of, of assault scandals, sex scandals, domestic violence scandals, alcohol scandals. Um, you know, I'm, I can't remember the team name, so maybe Cutler will come in and remind me. Bulldogs. Always Bulldogs. 
Yes, the Bulldogs. So so in what world, other than a world where sports are or sports players are bereft of those social consequences and we treat them in a really weird way, um, would in any industry you decide to go into a school, give a speech at a school about how like stay in school kids or, you know, whatever it is that they said and then go home and slide into the Instagram DMs of a school child and then want to meet up with them for sex. In in I'm not saying that professionals in other industries don't engage in this type of behavior, but in what world will we socially allow that and not give it the consequences that it deserves? And also come up with lots of journalists writing articles saying, yeah, well, they weren't under 16, so not a problem, guys. Yeah, I think this really does take you back to what is incumbent on sports to protect nurture and and I, I know I've talked about in the past the pastoral care element of sports and sporting organizations over young athletes and they should be creating the leaders of tomorrow not trying to pay tomorrow's bills with these players and not trying to make their their, their first million and I and I hope that coming out of this when there's not as much money flowing around of sponsors dollars to to put people uh, perspective out uh, to what sport is about and it's about connecting people and communities and and and, and cross-border relationships and 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 the the, the political power of, of sport that what it has over over guns um to actually you know um bring people with, who are so different together and and bring people to the table so to so to speak and it's getting into a to a, another conversation for another day but i think that that is what is probably the heart of what associate cricket um, needs to do better and although it has to do better at the moment because they don't have the money to th- to give to people to create comfortable quote-unquote lives but it's to actually get back to the heart of it whether it's a professional sporting organization an associate cricket board or, or w- women's cricket where, wherever it happens is to actually go back to what it is about about trying to help these people learn from when, whenever they get them and that's a problem with football and, and cricket to some degree but not as much these people don't live in the real world from when they're in their teens do they and I think that's that's the challenge for sport now because we're not going to come out of this a, a similar world where you're just going to have this bubble of money we need to be making tomorrow's leaders that concludes part one of our chat with Tasneem Samarkhan. We'll have part two on next week's show. As we said at the top of the podcast, don't forget to subscribe to the Emerging Cricket Podcast and please share the link with all your cricket-loving friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating and review wherever you are listening to this pod. If you want to support us financially, go to Patreon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Emerging Cricket where you can support us from as little as $2 US a month and you'll get access to extended cuts of a number of our podcasts and have a say on the show's direction. For now, though, on behalf of myself, Daniel Beswick, and the boys, Tim Cutler and Nick Skinner, as well as Tasneem Summer Khan, enjoy the rest of your day wherever you are around the cricketing world.